I got it. Hey, no pressure. I'm recording. Oh, okay, lovely. Well, awesome. So, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. We've got a we've got a global cast today. Um, this is the Hot Owl episode number fifty, and I'm one of your hosts, Brent Piotti. And uh, I'm Brian Carpenter, coming to you from the Republic of Texas. Yeah, yeah, I'm in Boston today, man. So I had to push my flight out today because I apparently have no sense of of time, and, and and time changes because Arizona does not change time. But uh, anyway, yeah. So I had to push my flight out by about six hours to accommodate the podcast. But uh, we're happy to be here today. And the goal of the show is to is to dig into community, right? We've 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 talked a lot about open source and what that means to the community and being a community builder. Um, and so we're going to dig into that and, and, and how one, you know, the, the guests um, from their company is, is going about this. We're also going to talk about configuration management and uh, that whole world and how community is involved with that. So with us today, we have Gareth Rushgrove from Puppet. Now, is it Gareth, is it, is it Puppet or Puppet Labs? I've seen it change, like the Puppetize, the Puppet logo, where are we at today with the uh, with the whole naming convention? Yep. Uh, so the company now is just called Puppet. Just um, called Puppet. So uh, we've been Puppet Labs for uh, well, a good number of years. Um, the reality was everyone just called us Puppet anyway. Um, and some recent work we were doing to basically uh, sort of rebrand, nice logos, sort of uh, some nice color schemes. The com- I think the feedback from some of the consultants we were working with was. Every, everyone in the room just says Puppet. We've talked to your customers and your users. Everyone just says Puppet. Why aren't you just called Puppet? And <laughs> I think realistically we didn't have a very good reason. And it uh, hadn't really been something people thought about a lot. But, uh, yeah, so, so today we're just, we're just Puppet. Okay, yeah, and I saw that the... The logo changed completely. So before it was the 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 the, the beaker, right, and uh, the purple logo. Now we're the the yellow, the dots with the lines connected. Something a little bit different, but uh, I, I think it seems to make sense. Yeah, very cool. So so Gareth, tell us about yourself, what you're doing at Puppet Labs, and and how you got there, man. Because we'd love to understand the journey of of what brought you kind of to to where you are today. Yeah, certainly. So uh, I'm. Currently, uh, one of the senior software engineers at Puppet. I work remotely out of Cambridge in the UK. Uh, I think most of our engineering folks are, are either in Belfast or in Portland, or we've also got a lot of remote people scattered around. Uh, I've been at Puppet for a couple of years, uh, mainly working on a whole bunch of uh, cloud integration, more recently uh, driving a bunch of the work around uh, containers, cluster managers, how Puppet interacts in sort of a, a sort of Container-centric world. Uh, I've so although I've only been at Puppet a couple of years, um, I've been around the Puppet community for I guess eight or so years, some longer period of time. So I've I've known a lot of the people who are sort of I've, I've known Luke who started Puppet for years. I've known some of the other founders, some of the other early engineers and uh, folks. So I sort of came in with a. A lot of context. I've been a user and a community member for a long time, yeah. uh, and we see, we see yeah, that before we see that from a passion perspective. Yeah. We see a lot of people who've said, "I've been around uh, Puppet or whatever it is for a long time," and then all of a sudden you end up working there. 
So was that a, was that literally a directive of like, you, you know, you went out and you were doing this thing and you're like, man, I'm going to go there and make this product even better because of my passion. Or was it something where, because of your involvement in the product, you got noticed and someone gave you a call and said, I really like what you're doing. I would like you to do it here rather than where you are today. Like which, which direction did that flow? Um, probably a bit of both over a period of time. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, I've had, I've got good friends as well as now colleagues at Puppet and uh, who I've known for years. Um, I think Puppet's been growing all of that time. I mean, we're now close on 500 people. So, uh, as a growing organization, we're always looking for other people. Um, as, and if you know Puppet, that's obviously helpful. If you have opinions and if you've been hacking around Puppet, that's super useful. Um, I think where I, where I was before though was was really appealing. So I think in some ways I could have come, I I could have seen myself coming to Puppet earlier. Um, but before I started Puppet, I uh, I spent four years at the UK government, uh, so I was one of the really early sort of tech people in government in the UK as part of the uh, government digital service or what became GDS. Uh, and that's I think at the time everyone was like you're crazy, you're going to work for the government, what's going on? Um, obviously, now, and for the, certainly in the UK, the sort of presence of GovUK and what the work GDS has done is now sort of well-known in the tech, se tech sector. Um, and if you look to the US, with everything that's going on with 18F and the US Digital Service, uh, they're now sort of, people are like, oh, there's something really interesting going on there. And they often point at what we did at, in the UK as sort of like, well, that's where we came from. So is that, is that the, the is that the UK I the version? Of being there for really early. Is that the yes. sorry that is that the UK version of Big Brother or and I'm not talking about the TV show that you <laughs> you started and gifted us with I believe so. Uh, but uh, is that the UK version of Big Brother or is that something more uh, um, socially acceptable than that? It's more the socially acceptable side. I think um, it's so a lot of it. What we were doing was uh, and a good example is is the work that went on for Gov UK. Uh, so go back sort of five years ago. If you wanted to find anything about the UK government on on the internet, on, online, then you had to know how the government was structured. And how governments are structured is crazy. Uh, and they change all the time. Their de departments come and go, ministers come and go, different bits move around a lot. And you had to understand that at a moment in time to find anything. Uh, what we did was basically created a, a single central place where you could actually all of the government content was in one place in the uk now if you want anything to do with the government you just go to www.gov.uk and it's all there um, and that was one of the examples of, of the work we did but we did a lot of other work around sort of transformation of government departments ad adoption of open source within government uh policy around adoption of open source in government uh security standards, um, adoption of modern infrastructure practices, the cloud-first policy work as well. So it was a real mix of policy bits and pieces, but also uh, like just technical people in a context that was used to maybe just outsourcing everything. Um, and yeah, that, that was a sort of moment in time that was really uh, like, it was good fun, but it was hard work. We got a lot done. And I was there for sort of four years and, uh, I, a bunch of that work was actually using Puppet in that context. So I wasn't uh, completely sort of uh, adrift from that community. And, and when I sort of finished with that work, really, um, Puppet was a really logical place to go and uh, hang out.
And so I, I do this every show almost. Uh, I'm fascinated by this. One of the great things that Brent provides for the show, uh, um, you know, one of many, is that he's really good at researching. And so he's dug into you, and we promise not to bring anything, uh, you know, embarrassing up, but actually something really, really cool. You have a bachelor's of science in applied physics, which by default means you're wicked smart. And then, <laughs> so, but I'm, you know, I'm just fascinated. How do you go from applied physics as your degree uh, and then moving into uh, something to the effect of software development. I mean, it, certainly you can transition. It's They're both sciences of sorts, but we talked to a guy named Steve Francia once, and he mentioned that he had a you know a degree in, uh, Brent, help me out here. It was uh, philosophy, right? Yep, philosophy. Yeah, so, and he said he uses that as kind of like a logic basis for everything else he does, and it was just mind-blowing, and it was really, I mean, it's so clear, but yet mind-blowing. So tell us, how does applied physics end up in, senior software engineering for public for puppet i think the thing with physicists is they get everywhere um uh, there's obviously physicists who become professional physicists but actually physicists just get everywhere uh i'm uh sort of well one of my uh, sort of i guess computer science here was sort of uh, mark burgess um who i was looking to bump into again last week uh he's a physicist um the we're, we're everywhere. And I, I think the thing there is that it's generally people who go into physics at sort of college and universities are inquisitive. Um, I think as much as anything else, there's probably there's enough maths there that you have to be technically literate. Um, and you, and I think my thing is problem solving more than anything else. Um, the, and there are different types of problems and different ways of solving them and, uh, Part of that is quite a logical sort of thing, and computers are just one way of solving different types of problems. But there are all, but there are lots of interesting problems that you can solve with them. Um, I've worked in lots of different domains. Uh, I'd say a little, I've worked on the sort of software as a service places. I've done a, uh, sort of things as a developer and more of an operator. Uh, I've done sort of e-commerce and financial stuff. I'm now working for a software vendor. I worked for the government for a number of years. The sort of I'm less bothered about like working in a single sort of type of organization and more bothered about sort of, yeah, just problems and uh, interesting things to do. And I think physics is definitely like the type of people who do physics tend to be of that ilk. I may be a bit more uh, interested in wandering around than uh, people who would stick around and become a professor and, and become the sort of PhD sort of specialist and something. I'm more of a generous generalist than a specialist. So what what got you the 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 coding bug though? I mean um how what how did you make that transition? Did were you just doing it through college or did you have some buddies? Like I mean there there um, had to be something that pulled you in in that direction. I always sort of done things with computers from from having seen computers, I think. Um I remember being at sort of junior school, sort of, I don't know, seven or eight, um, and the school got like three computers and one of them went to the top, the sort of the oldest class, one went to the youngest class and one went to the receptionist. And they, they were the first computers that had sort of arrived at that school. Um, and I was messing around with them then. Uh, so I think there's a sort of history of just messing around with computers and being confident early that I could make them do things if I... So if I, if I had something to do, I could probably make a computer do it. So then it becomes about finding things to do. Um, I did a little bit of 
formal programming at university as part of the course. So that was mainly Fortran uh, and quite old versions of Fortran. Uh, um, but the I also did a whole bunch of uh, work setting up sort of early websites at university for um, well sort of for things like music societies or like promoting gigs. I used to do a lot of uh, music promotion, um, and this was sort of a little bit before everyone was online. But everyone at university was online because all the university communities were networked. So this was sort of before everyone was turning up with laptops, which is sort of, and mobile phones, as I presume is not the case now. But everyone was at the library or everyone was at the computer room and everyone had access to these things. Um, and I was promoting gigs and was putting up websites. Um, and it sort of rolled from there. I, uh, a lot of it's been self-taught. And then I've worked in companies that I guess have been increasingly uh, technically literate, technically competent, technically motivated I sort of gravitated towards that way and, and spent a lot of time learning myself. So. Cool. Awesome. So speaking of computers and speaking of, let's just let's say, uh, physics on a micro level, maybe even a, uh, a nano level, but this week in tech history, uh, September 22nd, 1986, the U.S. District Court in California rules that computer code is protected under copyright law protectable under copyright law and, and law. And this stemmed from a case between NEC and Intel Corp uh, with a battle regarding the rights to produce x86 processors. So I think we know who won that battle. Um, but based on that, so you're an open source guy now, you're a developer. Talk to me about uh, um, you know what, what you think about copywriting of code. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? What does that mean in the open source world? Just give me your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's a it's a necessity. It's I think it's a it's a good thing, broadly speaking. Um, and you described me as a sort of an open source guy, and I've done I I, I, I contribute to loads of open source projects uh, around Puppet, obviously as part of my job, um, but previously to Puppet before it was my job, but also to loads of other projects as well. Um, but I'm also working for a software company that sells software, so from a certain point, I mean, like. Puppet produces a lot of open source software, but we also produce software that is not open source. Um, and cop copyright ultimately is a is a way of is a is a protection for well for individuals, but also groups of individuals as companies over the the hard work that they've done. Um, and so, part of I mean, ultimately part of my salary. For the jobs I've done has been about someone paying for the sort of the gift of my copyright from a certain point of view. I, I'm writing some code, they're paying me a salary, really in exchange for owning, owning the code, owning the copyright to the code as well. So I think without it, the software industry would look quite different. Um, what that would look like and whether that would be better or worse is sort of, I guess, probably in the eye of the beholder. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan and proponent of the power of open source, but I'm not a sort of purist or sort of believe that everything everywhere should be free to everyone all the time. Very cool. All right, awesome. Thanks for the perspective on that. So let's dig into the tech. Let's dig into uh, another reason that people join us on the show, not only to learn about our our uh, guests' past, but uh, what they're doing now. So we've had other 
configuration management uh, companies and uh, guests on. Um, so let's talk about Puppet and and what makes you guys tick and 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 what's different about you versus the others out there. Yeah, I think a big part of Puppet has, has always been like, especially from a technical point of view, uh, it's about modeling, which is a little bit abstract. Um, and I'll sort of dig into it a little bit. It we and Puppet is a well, Puppet's nearly a, a few different things. Um, most people sort of start with it's it's the DSL, it's a programming language, um, and that is at this point actually quite a, a. It's not a general purpose programming language. It's not an object oriented programming language. It's not a programming language that's as familiar to people from a paradigm point of view as, as lots of others. However, it is it's a programming language. It's, it's that's declarative. It's about declaring what you want and. Then Puppet's runtime comes in, which basically takes that language and turns it into to something that can be acted on. Um, so it compiles that down into a graph. Uh, that graph can then be realized in a number of different ways. But the main way people realize it is as a configuration management tool, as a way of installing and managing and ensuring the state of packages and users and files and servers and groups and everything else there. So it... But coming back to it, it, it's a it's a language, it's a programming language that allows you to model desired state, and that's quite like it. it and by model, I mean like formally. I, I like you have to be correct, and that that sort of upfront forcing function, um, I think can can be it's different to people's experience of certainly writing like a Bash script or a PowerShell script or something like that. It's not just line-oriented. It's not just one thing after another. But the benefits are, are similar to the benefits you get from sort of having a compiler. You have that upfront check that things are going to be right. You're not having to wait to runtime to go like, oh, no, I didn't mean that. And it's just uninstalled everything. When you've got this really upfront checking function. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes Puppet really powerful, uh, especially for people that sort of grok that, especially if people can sort of I think one of the reasons I've tended to use Puppet over other tools has been it fit my mental model and it, and having a formal a way of formalizing and writing down and sharing like your mental model is really powerful. Um, it's yes, a good way of sort of avoiding those sort of bugs that come in because two people think about things differently. Yeah, it's, it's pretty opinionated. Yeah, let's get into it. I like that, the mental model, right? So... Uh, it, it lies right with another question we had for you. There's a message that you put out there that says, get your life back with Puppet. Um, but, you know, mm -hmm. that, and, you know, the, really that's saying, I can help you do things that we're, you weren't able to do before. But I believe it relies on a mental model of wanting to do those things and having a certain thought process or a passion of getting those things done. So how do you get people who don't already have the mental model of, I'd like to do things a certain way and kind of unbreak? How do you get people to believe that um, changing the way they consume things is is uh, a way of getting their life back? Well, I think that's one of the things that's been sort of pretty amazing initially from the outside, and especially now the inside where I, I can talk. I meet a lot more people who are using Puppet um, from customers, from users. That that sort of those sorts of lines are not spin or marketing. I mean, obviously we use them as such, but they think they're direct quotes from people that have experienced that. 
Um, and it's sort of quite amazing when people have, have come and said, like, they, they have, they do feel like suddenly they've got all this time back. They've got this, like, they're not as stressed. They're able to do things that they weren't able to do before. Um, and I think it's just, it's, it's a generational shift from what was happening before. Um, because what was happening before was often very much about individuals and daring, like, dare not to touch it. Um, and things falling over and brittle, it's a very brittle infrastructure, very individual infrastructure. Um, and because of some of the opinions that come with Puppet, it sort of forces you away from that model uh, towards being sort of more team-oriented and much more robust. And Puppet's constantly doing that, those sort of checks that you, you couldn't possibly do it as quickly as a computer. Uh, and you sort of over time get that confidence and suddenly you're like, oh, I can sit back and I know that actually it's going to be right. And if it's not right, Puppet will tell me. Um, and that gives you that time to breathe and then then start racing ahead to look at other types of, of technology that can benefit your business. Yeah. So and then the other part of this is, you know, uh, Brent started it and you're talking about a couple of things that are almost standard to configuration management. And I don't know if you've heard this before, but we heard it a couple of times before. It's really just, you know, pick a configure at the end of the day, pick a configuration manager and go with it. Um, but there's almost the sentiment that they are uh, commoditized. So why would it, I mean, maybe you don't care. Maybe puppet as a whole, uh, you know, point of view doesn't care. But why would somebody pick a puppet over a chef or over any of the other, you know, salt, whatever else is out there? Why would they pick something over the other? Why should they even care, or is it just get it and go, just move on, just plug it in? Um, I think there's 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 to a degree sort of an argument for well, you should pick something. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm biased, and you should pick puppet. But I think the the reasons for that are, and one way we we do have this sort of amazing community, this sort of what we've got a really good uh, sort of user base, and some of that is. Puppet's been around a little bit longer, but also it's not been that much longer. And like we're still growing, a really, and we're growing a really good company. If you're on, if you're interested in the commercial side, the open source stuff is uh, still like growing. Loads new new contributions, new contributors. We have a lot of content because of that, and I think that's and Puppet in in of itself, and like the, just the sort of the the thing that is Puppet ultimately allows you to manage quite low-level primitives, sort of files and services and packages. But you really want to be thinking at a higher level. Um, but that's where the sort of the ecosystem of content comes in, sort of Puppet more as a platform than just a tool. So you've got modules for Apache and Nginx and MySQL and Postgres, and that list keep going. So, you, like, yes, it's got the sort of traditional Unix stuff, but there's a lot of Windows content there. There's a lot of content for, for example, Mesos or for Docker. So you've got the sort of breadth of content. Um, and I think I'm, I'm, we'd like to think that we've got most things covered there as part of the community, and most of that gets better all the time. Um, I think the other thing with Puppet is that it's because of the approach of having that, like, sort of that declarative programming language, um, it can be simple for new, uh, new users especially for sort of systems administrators who maybe are not familiar with programming as a whole. But that's actually really extensible to have for power users. So there's a number of different jumping on points for different types of people. If you're a, if you're a programmer, then, well, 
we can give you a sort of full development sort of environment and ID and everything else. If you're actually just a systems administrator who wants to move from using your bash scripts to something else, there's no entry point for that. But it's the same tool and it balances out. And I think what we see with sort of it, that helps it scale inside large organizations that some people just want to get their job done and, and don't want to become experts in all the tools. They can, use, they can consume pu Puppet content from people who are more interested in Puppet. But it's all the same tools, so they all get the same information constantly and have, like talk about things in the same way with the same language and have that same mental model. Um, so it scales organizationally pretty well. Yeah, it was interesting. I was watching uh, one of your one of your spe uh, speeches on on YouTube, uh, and you brought up this this kind of you brought up the family, right? Are you a developer, an operator, or whatever? Um, but you actually said, look, if you're using Puppet, for instance, you're a developer, right? You're writing code. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that, because I think that there's, and I know we're we're moving uh, towards this DevOps model. DevOps is certainly a buzzword, but there still is true. There's a, a real bifurcation between Dev and Ops. Um, so you know, talk about bridging that gap to make people feel maybe a bit more comfortable with embracing um, a development side or or vice versa. Yeah. So well, I think. From the development side, it's it's made, it's sort of easier in the sense that um, uh, Puppet is a programming language, it's a programming tool. Uh, we have tools like unit testing frameworks and linters and things that as a programmer you would expect to have for a programming language. Um, it's fine to have a language. If it doesn't have the tool chain required to do real programming, you're going to be skeptical. We've got that. So you then need to sort of understand the domain that you're trying to do something with. Like, do you understand operating systems? Do you understand what you're trying to achieve? You're trying to install something or package something or whatever you're trying to do. Um, so I think the struggle for developers is much more about the domain. Um, coming to Puppet, it's a programming language. It's just a different paradigm. Um, but that paradigm is because it helps you fit the domain better. Uh, for, for operators, a lot of it is confidence. Um, and the number of sort of um, traditional systems administrators who will say, oh, I'm, I'm not a programmer. And then you say, well, do you write Bash? And they'll be like, yes. And they'll, they'll quite talk, happily talk about different types of shell scripting. Uh, and then you'll be like, do you write Perl? They'll be like, yes. Have you ever written any C? And they'll be like, I haven't written something from scratch, but I've modified an awful lot of it. Um, and you start going through and you go like, you know there's more programming languages than, like, certainly someone like a, sort of a Java developer would probably go like, I've mainly written Java. I've mainly done, I might have done a bit of Ruby and a bit of JavaScript. Um, and the sysadmin is going, I'm not a programmer, but I've written in 10 programming languages of the last week. Um, so some of it's just that confidence. And Puppet tries as much as it can do to provide a, an, an on-ramp that, like, you are programming, but... And you're not, you're not, it's, it's, you don't have to go through that sort of, oh, the hello world is not useful. The hello world is just a hello world for you to learn to do the next 10 steps, by which point you can do something useful. The hello world for Puppet is useful. Um, and so you can take people who are actually probably better programmers than they realize, but they've never thought of themselves as software engineers or, or really even programmers sometimes. I think that um, obviously people can be a little bit down on their, uh, skills. 
anyone who says it is just Bash or it's just PowerShell is sort of missing the point that they're actually quite large, like languages that are quite difficult to write things in sometimes. Yeah, we are, you know, uh, shout out to um, Karsten Bott, who I see put up PowerShell stuff all the time. It's just amazing. And exactly, when I see him put that stuff up there, I'm like, wow, I can't wait to consume that. And frankly, I could not do that myself. So for somebody like that to say that I'm not a programmer, um, you know, maybe he, maybe, of course, he probably does think he is. But for somebody else similar who's working in PowerShell and says I'm not a programmer, they're clearly wrong. But also, you you just said yourself, sort of, uh, you consume things. Well, there's no, at any given level of being a programmer, you consume things. Like I, I didn't write the Linux kernel, and I'm running a lot of software on top of it. I didn't write all of the libraries I'm using. I didn't write the languages I'm using. To you're always consuming people things from people at a different level, and it's not that's not better or worse. It's just someone is focused on a different domain, um, and the fact that you're doing like you're taking someone's PowerShell uh, sort of commandlets and doing something with them and composing your own high-level tools is exactly what we see with Puppet at different levels. Um, people create Puppet content for other people to consume. Um, and you often find, and some of that is open source and uh, are available on the Puppet Forge. Um, some of it's, there's lots of modules on GitHub. But also then people take those modules and create their own modules inside their organization and then often there's another set of people, a sort of an even wider set of people who can consume those in, internally. So Puppet's good at making sort of uh, user interfaces for, for that type of person who is actually incredibly computer literate, is, is using lots of different tools, but doesn't think of themselves as a programmer. Yeah, and that's uh, so. I was going to ask you this question. You you've really just teed it up for me. So thanks for the thanks for the <laughs> podcast softball here. You know, I so w we see plenty of customers who come to you and say, "I have some problems. I believe Puppet can solve them. Help me solve them." Those qu those customers are relatively easy because, again, like you said, they kind of get it and they're really just trying to get on. Let's talk about the customer who or you know who is literally just like this doesn't make sense to me. My environment doesn't need this. I don't need this. Um, you know, it's like, is there, a, is there a baby steps model that you would give to somebody to say, look, I want you to go do these three things, five things, whatever, even one thing, and then come back to me again, and you tell me that you still don't think this matters to your business. Um, is, there, is there a challenge, you know, that you can give to somebody that says, go do this in your environment and come back to me, and then if you still agree that you don't need this, you know, here, I'll give you a hundred bucks, whatever it is, you know, so. Yeah. I, I think often it depends on the like the nature of that organization. Um, and some of our like biggest customers, uh, it's amazing. How, and again, like sort of very large, very heterogeneous environments. It's amazing how much value and how they've talked about sort of like getting value really quickly out of Puppet by doing things that for an advanced user would be like, well, no, we like what? Um, uh, so, for example, like managing t like managing NTP or managing a time server on a on servers, um, it's easy to take for granted a bunch of the sort of simple things like that. Where it's like, well, it needs to be installed, it needs to be configured. It's not a, it's not a complicated thing to have configured. But obviously, if your servers think the time is different, you're going to have a bad time all the time. Uh, time, um, and I think it was uh, Nate from Walmart uh, at. PuppetConf uh, last year 
um, talked about uh, as in one of the keynotes, just like being able to manage like all of their, the time and all of their service. Suddenly, there were there were all sorts of things that they knew were wrong, all sorts of things that they didn't know were wrong that were suddenly gone away. And obviously, if you talk to sort of an advanced user or someone who's been like familiar with these tools for a while, or or is maybe has a really homogenous environment, then of course these have solved problems. But I think sometimes it's just there'll be some sort of really wide, really simple like thread that actually on the public code side is five lines, ten lines. It's sort of it's it's very little of the code side, but you get the whole monitoring you get everything going into your sort of central uh, sort of puppet db you get everything into the console you get everything into uh, sort of enterprise sort of visualization tools um and so you've written nearly no code really you've probably just reused a module from the forge added a little bit of classification you're doing the same thing everywhere um, and you're suddenly able to get a lot of benefit from it um so yeah looking for things that are really uh, sort of specific um, uh, I think is the best way to go about it. Awesome. Well, thanks for those use cases. Definitely, you know, I, I, th- I think this is we, we've talked about this in length um, with with you and others. And, and again, it's just like pick one, try it. Um, it is actually beneficial. I see it at you know uh, as swath of customers of mine. Um, that said. Let's shift gears into the project that you cover, which is Project Blue Shift. So, first of all, love the name. At first, I, I had to think about it, and then I was like, "Oh yeah, hello!" Like, think of like third grade science. Um, so, talk to us about Blue Shift um, and why you came up with the name for those that don't quite understand it, and uh, talk about what what you guys are doing over there. Yeah, so I think I'm, one aspect of Puppet that we've sort of done really well with is, is, is host level management. Like most, most people are familiar with Puppet as a way of managing individual hosts. So they can manage packages and servers and files and groups and everything there. And for advanced users today, that's sort of, that's the sole problem. Like we have tools like Puppet. Therefore, it's nearly sort of easy to move on to the next thing because you've solved a layer of the problem. Um, and there's a lot of interest in everything to do with containers, cluster managers, uh, platform as a service, increasingly serverless. We'll see AI things happening later, later on. Um, and one of the things that we were sort of seeing, um, well, was twofold, really. The community was actually busy creating content or experimenting with Puppet for all these things. So uh, I was checking, actually, sort of, uh, the Puppet Docker module that actually I wrote before moving to uh, Puppet um, is three and a half years old, which is, on, uh, which is only just uh, younger than Docker, Docker's first open source release. Um, I, I think it's like two weeks or something. Uh, there's also um, uh, some really good uh, modules for managing uh, all the different bits of Mesos, which again are just under three and a half years old. Um, and so the community has been sort of using Puppet as a way to, like, bridge to sort of go like, well, oh, cool, I have my infrastructure, it's all really managed. There's this new thing that, that is, looks really good. What's the best way of me trying that out on my existing infrastructure? Oh, well, Puppet's there to help. 
Um, but that was about early adopters, so people like myself who now work at Puppet, um, uh, people who were trying out Mesos like sort of three and a half years ago before really it had name recognition as uh, things do now. Uh, Kubernetes is the same, all these different bits of technology. Uh, what BlueShift is an attempt to do is basically sort of raise the visibility of that for, I guess, our customers and the sort of the people who are not the early adopters. They're not out there on the internet trying these things out. It's that they want to be able to adopt them into their infrastructure in a sane way, uh, in a manageable way, um, easily and cheaply, without the sort of the like the, the constant paradigm shift. Um, I think, and where Puppet is all about helping you manage the things you're running. So we're by necessity actually more interested in uh, helping people manage the type of software they're running. To today uh, than we are sort of running over the horizon. Um, but we want people to be doing that because that's where sort of new things come from. But I guess for, for a lot of our customers, they're going to be managing really heterogeneous environments. They're, and they're going to be managing the mainframe as well as the container fleet and everything in between at the same time. And what BlueShift's really looking to do and BlueShift is just, is just a banner under which we're talking about a bunch of this work is working with uh, sort of vendors who are building that, those sort of future technologies um, so working with Docker or Mesosphere um, uh, talking to Coros or Rancher or uh, Absera um, about well they're, I mean, they're going to focus on making their technology the best thing it can be in its specific domain um, we're going to focus on making that it possible to manage their technology alongside existing technologies. Um, and that's the sort of a, a nice split. And basically, and that's, that's what we've seen the community do. That's what we've seen the early adopter community do. Um, and what we want to do is sort of help that along, industrialize that, make that easier if you're not an early adopter. Sure, absolutely. So um, talk about the name because I love it. Uh, I think it uh, it hit home as soon as I realized what it actually meant. Um, thinking back again to third and fifth grade science. Yeah, it's um, I, that was the brainchild of uh, one of my colleagues, Tim. I think in the uh, product marketing team, that just really about just like a shift, just about sort of it's it's not. I think in like if you look at the sort of best managed infrastructures, it's not about um, burning everything down to start again all the time. Um, we need to sort of just like be able to do all these things at the same time and just and move forward, like um, but without just sort of yeah, without the sort of just like no no, that's the end of yesterday. Now to start again, let's start again, let's start again. Can't we do something that's a bit less? Right on. Cool. So, so Gareth, talk to us about how you engage the community and how big the community is. So if we look at just kind of Project Blue Shift as a whole, you've talked about many things. You've talked about Docker, Kubernetes, Mesos. I read a, a blog post where you uh, did an interview with uh, VMware and talked about Photon operating system, but CoreOS console. Who else? And, and is the community the, the open source, um, you know, like kind of – Aka companies out there, uh, or or with these like actual users that are coming 
and, and you're developing, um, um, I, I'm trying to think, what's the term in, in Puppet World? Um, not, not, not chef. Uh, mod- the modules. The modules. Okay. Yeah. I thought there'd be something uh, a little different, but anyway, so yeah, the modules. Yeah, chef so, would call them like, they call them like frittatas or something. They're, yeah. Right. <laughs> recipes. Yes. Um, but yeah, so, uh, are, are people coming to you? Or are you developing, uh, um, modules for puppet just on their behalf? Or are you working with directly with like the mesospheres and the VMwares and things like that to develop these things? It's a really good mix, actually, at the moment. So we've got the, and I think we often talk about the, the puppet community and the sort of the sort of user community, um, and that's definitely that. I mean, that composes like the sort of this long tail of open source users, but also the commercial users as well. Um, it's really nice that we, like the the tool, like yes, there are commercial aspects to puppet enterprise, but actually the community is one group of people. Um, We've got Puppet Conf coming up in San Diego, and that will be people who are using. They're like, "Oh no, we're using Puppet, and we're talking and sharing about Puppet, not a sort of a room for people on the commercial side and a room for people on the open source side." Um, so there's that really big user community. Um, obviously, part of that user community contribute uh, modules to the Forge, which is our sort of, uh, if you like, app store of Puppet content. Um, and some of those uh, modules are are geared towards this sort of this these technologies that people are sort of starting to adopt now. Uh, so I mentioned the Mises uh, modules, there's modules for console, there's modules for sort of other bits and pieces that have come from that user community. Uh, there are also modules and, and content that we as Puppet are providing. Um, so in some cases that's uh, simply because we, we, can, we can invest money and time and effort in things that uh, we'd like to see better or our users would like to see better. Um, and for a lot of our users, whether it's coming from the community uh, who are writing really good content or it's coming from Puppet, they don't mind. They don't really care. They just want the content. Uh, for some of our customers, they, would, they, they want to see a, a level of support. Um, and so often that involves uh, people like myself or there's a Puppet being sort of more actively involved in those projects. Um, so that, that's on the sort of, I guess, content creation side. Uh, we're also t- uh, talking to uh, I mean, customers who want to consume it. I'm, I'm regularly talking to customers who are using Puppet and, and Docker or Puppet and other technologies together um, or want to do or are going to be doing in the future. They're looking at strategy and how we fit in. Uh, and Health Direct are a great example. Uh, they're a healthcare company out of uh, Australia um, and one of their uh, sort of and one of their architects now actually, uh, uh, Scott wrote a really good book recently, um, which is basically Puppet and Containerization, about how they'd gone about using Puppet and, in their case, in their case Docker and Docker Swarm, uh, to build out their infrastructure. And it's a really sort of complete picture, and it's a, a nice validation when it's all those things. I, I think they're also a, a Docker customer as well as a Docker user. Uh, they um, they use a lot of open source pieces from Docker and from Puppet. They're a Puppet enterprise customer, um, and they've been really successful really early and um, taking all these things together. And, and in an environment like healthcare, where it's actually tough, like they they can't just throw things up and hope they work. Uh, like this is their production infrastructure. So okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I apologize. You know, the internet has, is, has a strange way of teaching you a lesson. And our lesson today is 
you better know exactly what, how to cut off a question when somebody stops talking. Um, so you were talking a bit about uh, Project Blue Shift. And so, you know, let's, let's ask, you know, when did Project Blue Shift come about? Like how long have people been consuming it so far? Yeah, so, so Blue Shift's a, a sort of uh, banner we've been using for, I think, four or five months or so, maybe a touch longer. Um, really just a group, a bunch of work that was already going on, uh, both inside Puppet um, in different places, but also within the sort of broader Puppet community. Um, so it's a relatively new sort of, I guess, branding. Um, but some of the works, actually, I, I mentioned things like the uh, the Puppet Docker module is more than three years old. The uh, the, the Mises work is probably a similar length of time. Um, but trying to give these things visibility and trying to sort of tie them together a little bit, because um, lots of people, are, if they're interested in one, they're probably interested in the others as well. Okay. So now, you know, my question to you again, like I, we mentioned earlier, you, you want to get somebody into the world of a puppet, you know, you can give them a challenge and say, go do these things. Where would you suggest a customer who is a entrenched puppet customer or even, you know, any sort of thing like that? And you start to see them wanting to do things like try out these new types of architectures and, you know, maybe shift the way that they're consuming things. How would you challenge them to look at Blue Shift as a way to uh, change the way they're consuming their their Dockers or their Mesos or their wh whatever else is involved of these things that have already been being done by other people. How would you challenge them to go? This is the way you can do these things to make it easier and get a higher success rate. I think the the best place where sort of puppet comes in, it's not a good example, is you want to go into production. You want to get um, that like this sort of like maybe you've had a development team or a couple of development teams actually experiment with docker building containers actually going like wow wait a minute this 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 can simplify how we do a whole bunch of things um you've then got that challenge of basically how do i scale this out in operations um how do you, how do i scale this in production and that can then sort of get into a slippery slope of like, well do you need a separate infrastructure do you need a lot of like heavyweight tools do you do you need to jump straight away into sort of orchestrators um and a platform and, and suddenly you start talking about sort of big things that start needing a lot more money a lot more time a lot more effort and feel like you're building something in parallel to your existing infrastructure if you're not careful um if you have a large infrastructure and you want to start using docker and that infrastructure is today managed with puppet um it's nearly as simple as adding a line to your existing puppet manifest you can just write pretty much include docker um, uh, pull down the Docker module, uh, which is supported for public customers, um, but is open source to available for everyone. And you have Docker everywhere. Um, but not only did that, that the module supports um, sort of preceding images. It pr provides you with sort of uh, the ability to start up containers and have them managed by the init system if you want to sort of go that route. Uh, you can deal with updates. It works across different platforms. So maybe you have a mixed environment of RHEL and Debian and Ubuntu and uh, machines. Well, Puppet abstracts all of that away from you, from you. And you get all the operational intelligence coming from Puppet running constantly. So not only do you know Docker's installed, if someone uninstalled it or broke the configuration, well, Puppet will put that back and tell you about it. So if you're confident with Puppet, actually rolling out Docker to 10,000 machines 
is a trivial problem. Um, and that's often the starting point for, like, you have, con like, you sort of, your application developers or your middleware developers are, are making containers. You need the container runtime, but it can help you get there in a way that is exactly like anything else you're managing with Puppet. Um, and also a lot more powerful than something that's just wrote for that particular purpose. Um, a lot of people for installing these things will point you at some random bash script on the internet that doesn't SSH follow you but installs other things. Or they'll point you at something, well, oh yeah, you run these commands um, on the machine. It's like, well, I have like 5,000 machines. That doesn't sound that fun. Um, We've already we already have mature tooling to help people roll out, for example, Docker across their entire fleet. And so and that's a good example. Yeah, and uh, we mentioned we keep mentioning Docker. So let's just ask the question: As you see people, you know, as you're helping people consume these technologies, and you know, as as leading BlueShift, uh, you know, for for Puppet, um, is is Docker like the prevailing operating system that's being consumed in this pro in this project? Is it is it ninety five percent, or are we are we 50% Docker and 45% and Kubernetes? Where, what do you see the landscape being from, from your mm -hmm. perspective? Um, I see a, a lot of people using a lot of different things. I think partly because of working at Puppet. And not only with the well, two sides of that. One is we've got a lot of customers, a lot of users. So we've got data on what people are doing, at least in that our segment. Uh, but we've always been unopinionated about the technology you use. And we've got customers on AIX and uh, RHEL and Windows and every operating system under the hood running any software they choose, everything from sort of uh, like WebSphere and sort of Oracle stacks up to Kubernetes and Mesos and everything in between. And with the container stuff, it, it's for us, it's the same. Uh, and I spoke at KubeCon this year, I spoke at DockerCon this year, um, where we're very much sort of, we're happy, like, I'm, from, from a commercial point of view, we're working with everyone, we're, we're, but also that's partly driven as well because we're seeing everything. We're, we're seeing people adopt all of these different technologies. Yeah. Um, I, think it, I think it's so early that what, like, if there's a winner or how big that winner is, um, time, only time will tell. And so what about, I mean, in my, my, my prevailing theory is because of all these like orchestrators of orchestrators, I tend to see people adopting a bit of a multi, uh, you know, a multi-platform environment. Like you said, you know, it's almost like heterogeneous is the new normal, right? So, you know, I, I feel like there's probably a lot of people who are uh, Docker, Kubernetes, maybe even also Mesos, maybe even Photon, where there, there, there is, whereas before we saw people who tried to kind of go all in on one thing, uh, I feel like everybody's going, the way they're going all in is on everything. Um, I think, I, I think, although in, in theory, people can say, oh, well, we are actually, we all went all in on one thing. I think the reality of data centers is they might have gone all in on one thing and that might have, and maybe, but it wasn't complete. It might have been, that, that might have accounted for 80% of the things they did that year. And they might then have changed their mind about which one thing it was the next year. And the life, the like, the lifetime for bits and pieces in data centers is long enough that over over ten or fifteen or twenty years, you end, even if you'd at any given moment had an all-in-on-one thing policy, it was very 
heterogeneous. And I, so I don't think it's the new normal. I think it's the existing normal. I think people can people will talk about containers as a way of, oh no, if you you can now consolidate everything on this one stack. I don't buy that because we've never seen it uh, before, and I, I, I'm seeing exactly the same sorts of things as you. Where, pe but people are experimenting often in small places with different technologies and different uh, things. I think there'll there'll be consolidation exercises in a lot of those companies over time, um, as they become more strategic. Uh, but also, I think the the market itself will see all sorts of ups and downs. We'll see more tools. We'll see a lot more tools. But also, we'll see um, things fail or things fall out of fashion. So it's moving very quickly. So yeah, I think there's still a long way to go. Gareth, what 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 are you guys focused on next then, uh, from a project blue shift perspective? Um, are, are you targeting a a project that's out there, a company, a a a movement? What what do you guys see on the horizon? Um, we're doing a number of things at the moment, and so. Uh, one of the things I did a little bit a uh, while ago, sort of a good few months now actually, um, was ship uh, puppet, a, a lot of the Puppet software actually as as uh, containers, as images. Um, so they're available on Docker Hub for people to pull. Um, and in, in and of themselves, that's sort of not, they're sort of they're there, people can use them, people are downloading and using them. Um, but that's opening up a few opportunities that we're sort of pursuing at the moment. Uh, one of those uh, you mentioned, uh, Photon. Um, so Photon has that sort of uh, VMware sort of really small Linux operating system designed as a container runtime. Uh, it's similar um, sort of to um, the work that Coros have done with Coros, uh, with Project Atomic for Red Hat, um, sort of Ubuntu core work from Canonical. And to a degree as well, the, like in not in technology, but in sort of philosophy to Nano from Microsoft. And these sort of that, that suite of sort of small operating systems designed to as to run containers as the as the unit of software. Um, uh, something that we've sort of ex experimenting with. And then the talk of Photon at VMworld was a good example of that. Um, and that's why we've sort of packaged up Puppet as containers, because it helps us uh, help manage these operating systems that are uh, sort of starting to be interesting, starting to proliferate, starting to be used by the sort of people who are going like, actually, you know, it's all about containers. Uh, so there's some more work going on around there. Um, I think another thing that we that we're going to be talking about at PuppetConf is around uh, the build process for containers. So uh, I did a talk at DockerCon about the sort of a, a broad spread of tools that people have sort of come up with and are emerging around building images. Uh, and Dockerfile definitely is the sort of the 80% solution there um, across the Docker tooling, but also that that's the that's how people are building images for most of the other sort of higher level orchestrators as well. Um, and actually Dockerfile gets bad press from a bunch of people who uh, mainly around sort of it being like sort of shell scripting like, but that's part of the beauty. It's part of the, the ease of adoption uh, however, there are sort of challenges if you're in a large organization, um, especially in sort of like a low trust large organization, uh, especially the one that's trying to scale that. Um, and you start thinking like sort of in two years time, how many Docker files would, would 10 teams each of 100 people have? Um, and 
you start to sort of think, ah, oh, like that, that, that sort of organizational scaling is sort of an interesting sort of problem. And, and that's akin to sort of going from uh, sort of the many bash scripts to something like Puppet today for managing uh, servers. And we, we've seen that scale. We've seen like small teams in large organizations manage really sort of quite large fleets. Um, and so there's some work going on around how can we try to do similar things uh, especially for for the puppet existing puppet users, uh, for helping them build images in a way that scales organizationally, um, not trying to be all things to all people. I think the the talk I gave was really around. I think as a community, we'll have different tools for different subsets of the build problem. I don't think there's a single tool that will win them all. I think actually Dockerfile's great, uh, and is probably the best Hello World example, or the best sort of starting example, and will be used for lots in lots of other cases and we'll we've been building some tools around Dockerfile as well for people who would rather go that route but some some work around that um it's going up as well and okay. we'll have a lot of demos of work we've done and and work other people have done as well at PuppetCon, some of which i'll keep secret for now <laughs> awesome well cool man so we're coming to the top of the hour and we're going to shut down this episode of the hot owl but before we do that we always like to ask our guests, where can we find you next, right? We've seen you presenting at conferences kind of all over the place. So where's, what's the next spot for you, man? Uh, quite handily, the next spot is actually at PuppetConf in San Diego in uh, the sort of middle end of uh, October. Okay. Uh, so awesome. I'll, I'll be over in the U.S. for a few weeks. Very cool. And then um, also on social media, I see you on there. So tell people what your handle is and uh, GitHub, and I've seen uh, a few other places, the DevOps Weekly. So talk to us about how people can hit you up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm Gareth R. pretty much everywhere on the internet. Um, so on GitHub, on Twitter, and uh, IRC when I'm there. Uh, so yeah, Gareth R. pretty much everywhere. And yeah, the uh, the DevOps Weekly, thanks for a shout out for that, is is, is my uh, one of my side projects of many. Uh, it's basically a weekly email sort of, well, curated email list of, of things that I found in it, within that sort of DevOps community in the last week. Uh, I've been doing it for six years, which is quite weird. Um, and there's a good few people uh, on there, but that goes out every Sunday. That's been a really good way of just sort of nearly having to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on. Sure. Yep. I mean, it's just like the uh, this podcast is a good way for us to keep a pulse on and all the technologies, uh, the DevOps Weekly look cool. You know, I, I think the the site that I saw, it hadn't been, the archive at least, wasn't updated since 2014. Uh, that's true. But yeah. I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, it looks like you're still doing it, right? Yep. Yeah, the, 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 I, it's one of those side projects things where, yeah, the, the website could do with a, a lick of paint and the archive could do the dating, but it's, it goes out every week. You should, okay. you should probably think about automating that. I, I know. it's being pointed out yeah there's you know uh i think you know electricians probably have the best worst electrical problems at home and things like that you know it's like when you get home i want to stop doing what i do best um definitely which is why i do nothing at home is because i do nothing great um (laughs) so you know i'm curious what is more than seven that's got to have a meaning, and I want to know what it is. Oh, that does have a meaning. Uh, so yeah, that the Modern Seven is the name of my occasionally updated blog at this point. I, I write a lot of content for Puppet and a bunch of other places. So I haven't been blogging there for a little while. Um, but yeah, the the name comes from a, a psychology paper 
a very a, a really really famous psychology paper basically about short-term memory um uh basically more, uh, more than seven plus or minus two uh it's i think it's one of the most cited sort of psychology papers um and it's really interesting from a programmer's point of view um i think because programming nearly forces you to get better at um sort of short-term memory recall uh, I think that if you if you think sort of as if, if you're in flow if you're writing code, then actually that's like the the domain over which you can do sort of short term memory recall is huge, um, and it sort of stretches that. And yeah, I think the the, the paper is point like a sort of is more general psychology stuff. But it's really good. Yeah, I I, right. uh, I like that a lot, and I think it's it's actually really cool. Uh, by the way, the the very top post on there, which if you keep updating. Is you know so far good reading is um, not every company is a software company and it's kind of an interesting yeah. debate where it's you know I understand everybody is a a consumer of software and a builder of outcomes um, but it is you know it's like you can't compare yourself to the to the unicorns which I think you know you you talked about that in 2015 we're still talking about it today right like use the concepts it, but like in a different way I think the 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 post there was talking about some of the if, if you assume everyone's a software company and if you take a software company like Google or like Microsoft and you, and you look at how they're structured and you look at the st like the staffing levels for different bits and pieces and you look at how much they pay and you look at a load of other sort of measures, if you then would say, well, every company is like that, uh, we, run out of, we run out of software developers very, very quickly um, and we run out of money very, very quickly and no one can afford to be a company and no, and none of these things are really how the world works. Um, there'll be a lot more consumption of software and there'll be a very long tail of, uh, sort of consumption of software. And we talk about, uh, and we talked a bunch about sort of puppet and automation. And we've talked a bunch about like sort of more recent sort of container and orchestrator things, but actually that, in all of that, that's probably twenty or so percent of the market um, of the like of the IT market today. Um, and when you say that, it's like, what's everyone else doing? And the answer is mainly manual processes or lightly scripted things. Um, and when it's sort of well, are they going to all look like Google? No, like there's going to be a long tail of, of adoption of all sorts of different software and the processes and practices that are used at different ends are, are different. It's sort of, yeah, the, the sort of the economics around the software industry as a whole and the like, users and companies adopting software as a whole and, and how open source fits in as well is super interesting. Cool. Awesome. Well, yeah, check it out, man. Go to uh, morethan7.net and check out, read the blog post and uh, get, get at you on, on uh, Twitter and GitHub. So, Gareth, uh, again, thanks for being on the podcast today. With that, we're going to shut down the hot aisle. My name is Brent Piatti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. Gareth, thanks again, buddy. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs>